I'm Trent England with Save Our States. Thanks for tuning in to another one of our Six Questions podcasts. I'm really excited to welcome to the program someone who I've, I've known for a while, really a, a great guy, someone who understands better than almost anybody else I've met what it is that makes our country unique and uniquely successful. And that is former Congressman Bob McEwen. Uh, he represented the, the great state of Ohio. Bob, what, what district in Ohio were the you six, in? From Columbus to Cincinnati, southwestern Ohio. Columbus to Cincinnati. So a great, a great part of the, the middle of our, our country. And, uh, and Bob is now the executive director of the Council for National Policy, where he spends a lot of time uh, talking with and coordinating with conservative leaders all around the country. So, Bob, thank you so much for being a part of our Six Questions podcast. Well, Trent, it's my pleasure and honor. Good to hear from you and delighted to be a part. So let's just get right into it. The first question is about you and, and your uh, your beginning in politics. You ran for office at the age of 24 and uh, won a seat in the Ohio State House of Representatives. You know, people spend a lot of time talking about how to get young people engaged in, in politics and in government. You were obviously about as engaged as, as a person could be in your early 20s. How did that happen? Well, I always had a passion for America. And I, I loved America and I hated communism. And uh, all during, when I was in high school, I could name all the U.S. senators. I couldn't name the ball, the ball players, but I did know who the political leaders were. And so when the seat opened up, I was in law school at the time. And the incumbent state legislator, who was from my hometown, I mentioned that he, he called to apologize for the fact that he knew I wanted to run for that seat. And that uh, obviously I was still in college and wouldn't be able to run. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> You know, this, this back before term limits, uh, they didn't open up every day. And so I said, we'll try it. So had a five-way primary in a rural area like that. You have to be a good farmer. If you're a good farmer, then you become trustee. If you're a trustee, then get elected county commissioner. And then in five counties, the county commissioners would run against each other. So uh, in all in all, it was uh, a fight between all commissioners, president of the Township Trustees Association in one of the counties and myself. So. Eventually, it turned out and then uh, was active in my predecessor's campaigns for Congress and then took his seat uh, when Ronald Reagan came around. Yeah. And, and you served in Congress at a time when bipartisanship was much more common, was sometimes even rewarded by the voters. People like to talk about working across the aisle. How surprised are you at how hyperpartisan Congress has become today? Well, Trent, it used to be that the Democrat Party uh, had people that were pro-American. Um, they, they, like on their right to life vote, uh, nearly a third of the Democrat caucus would vote uh, pro-life. They were Northeast Catholics and, and uh, inner city in Detroit and Chicago and elsewhere. But uh, the Democrat Party has done away with all of that. Uh, they have so uh, stressed the, the leftist agenda that I recently met with, with Democrat consultants. And these were people in Texas. And they were t- explaining to me that if they helped a state legislator in Texas run for office who was a Democrat pro-life, pro-marriage candidate, that they would be blackballed by the national party. They would not, that pollsters wouldn't work for them and fundraisers and, and other folks. 
And so the, the, the partisanship is such that in the process of it, remember from, from 1929 until we took control in 1995, uh, during that 70 year period, a third of the history of the United States, Republicans didn't chair a committee, they didn't pass a law, they didn't pass a single budget during that one third of the history of the country, except for 48 months. But uh, when, when we then were able, because of the Democrats becoming so narrow and so left that they squeezed those people out that used to be 90, you knew for certain, if you talked to someone who was Italian or who was Polish or who was a Czech American, you just knew they were Democrats. Uh, but when the Democrat Party became so narrow, uh, they began to become Republicans. They were first were called Reagan Republicans. And, and now the fact is, it's made the Republican Party a majority party for the first time in, in most of our lifetimes. That's interesting. You mentioned the Democrat consultants down in Texas. I, I had a similar conversation a couple of years ago with a Democrat consultant in Colorado who had some strong disagreements with some of the positions that their party was taking. And he could tell me <laughs> privately, but he, could, he couldn't say it publicly. I, I, I was fascinated by, by that. And it, it sort of goes to uh, questions of just how democratic really is the, the Democratic Party. Another institution though, that's much more important to our, our nation than uh, any political party is the Electoral College. Obviously that's what we do here at Save Our States. The Electoral College has been attacked as being insufficiently democratic. And I'm curious, Bob, what, what's your response to, to that, to people who attack, particularly the Electoral College close to my heart, but other institutions in our, our constitution as well, that somehow they don't measure up to this, uh, this standard of democracy? Well, and, and indeed that's, that's true. And many of the people uh, believe, like for example, the head of the, of the progressive caucus in the Congress, is a woman who never set foot in the United States until George W. Bush was president. And so she lectures us on the evils of our country and it's, it's terrible heritage. I just had to listen to her this morning on the, on the news. And then you have people that, that came from the Somali uh, Marxist revolutionary uh, uh, comes to this country. And they, they tell us because they constantly speak about democracy. Well, democracies don't last very long. Uh, just if I may borrow the, what James Madison, the father of the Constitution, said, he said that democracies have been spectacles of turbulence and contention. They've been found incompatible with personal security, or the rights of property, and in general, uh, have been in short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. And uh, we, as we're taping this, we're not that far away from Easter. And when the mob had a choice between Jesus Christ and a murderer, they chose the murderer. And so our founders understood what that is when you have a mob rule. And so they made it, and the distinction is, the word. reason the word democracy does not appear in any of our founding documents or any of the constitutions of the 50 states is because in a democracy, rights come from the majority. And so our daughter spent a year in Rwanda where 80% of the people are Hutu, 20% are Tutsi. So under a democracy, the 80% can vote to kill the 20%, which they did. And over the course of 90 days with machetes, they chopped uh, a million people into pieces. So our founders understood that's not a good place, to, that's not a good way to build a country. Therefore, our rights will not come from the majority. We hold these truths to be self-evident. In other words, son, if you're blind, deaf, and dumb, you gotta be able to see this. This is self-evident, Bozo. 
that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator, not from a not from a five to four decision of the Supreme Court, not from an 80 to 20 vote of the electorate, are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among those are life. That's supposed to be between a woman and a doctor. I don't want government involved in the bedroom. I don't want no, no, no. In America, the purpose of government is to protect life, then liberty. Notice the sequence. See, liberty is a precious little value if you're dead. So you have to have life first, then liberty, then sewer systems and overpasses. And so this country was established that our rights come from God. Therefore, in America, you can vote 95 to 5 to kill Jews, and you can't do it. Why? Because the rights don't come from the 95%. They don't come from the majority. They don't come from a democracy. And so it's a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it to the republic for which it stands. And so in our republic, we, and here's where the convert, where, where the misunderstanding comes from certain people. George Bush used to always talk about a democracy and things because why? Why do you say that? Well, they say it because we democratically elect representatives to run the republic. And so therefore we, we gloss over the fact by saying we're a democracy because we elect the leadership. But the leadership can't do everything it wants to. It can't do the, the things that, that uh, virtually parliamentarians can do, for example. In America, we have a very limited restriction on what government can do. And that limitation has made this little 4% of the population of the world uh, produces a third of all the goods and services on the planet. Every year, it writes more books, more plays, more symphonies, more copyrights, more inventions than the other 96% combined for a thousand of years. You just look around. You look at an airplane flying over what's going on in Europe. That airplane was invented by Americans. The lights on that airplane were invented by Americans. The tires where the vulcanization process, <laughs> everything so far, by the way, is all by not only Americans, but Ohioans. That's why I, I <laughs> emphasize that, that the internet and, and the, the global positioning system, which all the, every ship on the seas, all of the things that are, are done. And not only that, the, the integrity of, of the copyright system, of the banking system, if a ship is attacked on the high seas, as happened over 300 times last year, to whom can they appeal? the 327,000 Americans that wear the uniform of the United States Navy. So America is the standard for righteousness in the world. And in the process of that, we uh, are able to bless the world. And why is it? Not because we're a democracy, but because we recognize our rights come from God and have a limited government called a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. I'm so glad to get, get that explanation from you carried all the way through to all of these, you know, blessings that are so much more obvious to people, right? And, and I think that's the, the challenge that we have is people forget that all of the prosperity and liberty comes from these other things. You, you have to have those first. So I'm, I'm talking here on our Six Questions podcast with uh, former Congressman Bob McEwen, now the Executive Director of the Council for National Policy, also was a member of the 1776 Commission which was uh, one of the first things destroyed by the Biden administration on their first day in, uh, in power in Washington, D.C. But I think by that last answer, you, you gather just, uh, just the potential that that commission had if they had continued with, uh, with people like former Representative Bob McEwen there. Uh, fourth question here, uh, 
Republicans seem very likely to take control of the House of Representatives this fall. We've been talking a little bit about the Constitution. One of these interesting constitutional issues that has uh, gotten a lot more attention lately is how Washington, D.C. is governed. And there's talk about repealing the uh, D.C. Home Rule Act. You've been a real critic of the way D.C. is governed. What do you think should happen? Well, Trent, one of the reasons I am really reluctant to change the Constitution is because it seems like about every time we do it, we don't improve on it. And so I'm reluctant to, to wade into that thing. And our founders, and by the way, our founders weren't that far long ago. Most of us know somebody 80 years old. Three of those, three times 80 is 240. That's how long the country was. So it's 80 years from Washington to Lincoln, 80 years from Lincoln to FDR, 80 years from FDR till now. So it's a young country and our founders knew what they were doing. And they said that the, the capital city, uh, that's what they always do. You notice what's, uh, what was going on in, in Ukraine. They want to take Kiev. You want to take the capital. Once you take the capital, then you can control the government. And so uh, there, there is always an effort to make an impact there. And so what they said is, we're not going to have a city capital. We're going to have a federal city, and it will be controlled by everyone else. It's not going to have its own uh, rights, or its own rules, its own laws. Well, Mr. Nixon had some interesting ideas, and one of them was that uh, it sounds noble to let people have home rule. And so uh, they they decided they would let District of Columbia begin to make its own rules. And so a fellow who was uh, the vice president of the student uh, coordinating committee that, that called SNCC, it was in the 1960s, it was the, the, the BLM of the 1960s. They went around burning buildings and demonstrations on campuses. And so this fellow in his, in his Afro and in his outfit from, from uh, Mississippi, uh, he came running to Washington, D.C., and he ran for mayor and uh, Marion Barry there began to bring about the idea of the corruption and the chaos. And this beautiful, beautiful city that was run by the Corps of Engineers and they had beautiful flowers at the intersection. There were no cracks in the sidewalk. Everybody was safe and secure. They went back to home rule and it was so horrible that they finally had to take some of it back. And so they, the Congress took back the, the, the mall and, and the Smithsonian and up to the White House. And so there's parts of it that are still nice and safe. But if you get wandering off, then you get into the home rule part. And that's where the mayor of the city of Washington, D.C. took the, the, the uh, imprimatur of the communist, Chinese Communist Party, the Black Lives Matter. And uh, they printed, she painted that on the street in front of the White House closed down the street on 16th Avenue and made it a walking street where she, and named it uh, Black Lives Matter uh, uh, Promenade. And, uh, and so uh, the former, former Attorney General and myself, we, we host a prayer breakfast every Tuesday morning for ambassadors while they're hosted here. And then the, the Senate has a prayer breakfast on Wednesdays and the House has a prayer breakfast on Thursdays. But many of the, naturally, the people that attend our prayer breakfast come from Japan and from the Philippines and from China and elsewhere. And they come and they say, why is it that I go to visit the White House? And the sign says that only black lives matter. Now, we want to say all lives. And they say, no, no, they get very offended at that. The mayor gets very offended at that. 
And so this is exactly that which our founders didn't want to take place. They wanted it to be a safe place for everyone where no political party could, could influence or, or coerce the, those that came to visit their capital city. So in answer to your question as you began, I'd like to go back the way the founders intended it. Yeah. Okay, shifting gears, uh, two more questions here on our Six Questions podcast. Uh, Bob McEwen, you were in Moscow to witness some of the coming apart of the old Soviet Union. I think that gives you an interesting perspective on what's going on right now in that part of the world in Ukraine. You know, share your thoughts with us about the, the state of Russia, the situation uh, with, with the invasion in Ukraine. I mean, how, do you... Do you think that this is another Cold War? Uh, did the old Cold War never really end? I mean, what's what's going on there? Well, communism, socialism to, to a degree, and then ultimately communism, uh, as Lenin said, it flows from the barrel of the gun, which I actually, Mao Zedong said that. And so they, on, they only can maintain power, not because people vote for them, but because they, ha they have coercion. So the first thing they do, of course, is to take away guns. And uh, so they, the real part that, that began to shake was uh, in 1989 when they recognized that the communism could not complete with freedom and they were falling further and further behind and they chose uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev as the general secretary of the party. And he had two things. One was perestroika, that, that's where uh, we restructure things and glasnost where it's open. And so the people that began to rebel against that were the people in, in uh, Poland. And in Poland, uh, in a interesting meeting between the, the Pope who was Polish and the President of the United States, when they first met, uh, they had a private meeting, only four people in the room. And basically what the Pope said was, I can bring down the government if you can keep out the tanks. And the two of them agreed to that. And uh, over the next several years, the independence of freedom and through a, a, we don't have time for the story now, but it's a fascinating, fascinating ex example of how the communists fouled things up and got themselves in a pickle and where they were going to be such that there was going to be a, a vote for the prime minister of Poland. And uh, because of solidarity's success, it had the capacity to choose a non-communist leader of a communist country. Uh, it's never happened in the history of the world. They've only shot their way into power. And that's the only way they stay there. And I knew that if they did that, then one of two things was going to have to happen. Either they had to kill the guy and contain, maintain the controls they had since Lenin, or communism as a political force was going to come unraveled. And so I was able to convince Bob and Elizabeth Dole to go with me. And we were sitting in the balcony when they voted to choose Trudeau Sovietsky, a non-communist uh, fellow who was head of the Right to Life movement. And we had given him a a printing press. He moved from basement to basement every six days. He spent six of the previous eight years in jail. And the next day, we now that he was elected, next day we escorted him into the parliament. And uh, because we're, I figured if they were going to shoot him, they'd have to shoot him right in front of us. And we went in, we went in the, the chancellery and he's looking around. He said, you know, I've never been in here before. And, uh, and Elizabeth Dole gave him a letter from the president. I gave him a flag that flown over the Capitol. Dennis DeConcini, a, a faithful loyal Catholic from, uh, from Arizona, Senator Deegan Sini said, we're going to pray for you. And with that, uh, he didn't even wait for the translation. He turned, he said, that's what our country has been robbed of for these 47 years. We walk out and with that, uh, every microphone in the world is there. 
And I explained that this is just the beginning. This is going to march throughout Central and Eastern Europe. It will not stop till it reaches the heart of the very Kremlin itself. The tide of history is on the side of freedom and democracy. Socialism and communism as a political force in the world is dead. And uh, when I finished, having gone through all this rant, a fellow from the State Department came up, tapped me on the shoulder and pointed across the street. And there leaning up against his limousine was the Soviet ambassador leaning there waiting for the Americans to leave, which told me they weren't going to fight. And when they didn't, a week later, uh, Hungary went. And then uh, one by one, uh, nine weeks later, the wall came down. The next January, Czechoslovakia and all the rest. And ultimately, then a year later, even the Kremlin itself collapsed. Now, that aggravated a dedicated KGB agent who hated freedom and loved communism. And his name was Vladimir Putin. And he began to rebuild his effort. And his goal is to use the coercive police powers of the state to maintain control and all he and weakness trans weakness always invites aggression never in the history of the world has one nation had the capacity to overrun another nation but what it didn't do it with a single exception the united states of america after world war ii and so that whenever there's an imbalance of power and so when when uh, when he he saw that he could take crimea under obama and nothing would happen, so he did. And then Mr. Mr. Trump fouled everything up by arriving in the White House, and uh, the British, the Russians were in charge of the Syrian uh, weapons of the the uh, the uh, I'm trying trying to think chemical weapons, and uh, and so they they promised that they wouldn't be used. They used them against the Kurds. And Donald Trump put 200 cruise missiles in there and wiped out six brigades of, of, of Russian troops. And so he stayed in his hole until the day that Mr. Biden shows up and says, oh, by the way, you can have your you can have your pipeline. You can get your hard currency. We'll even shut down our wells, So we'll buy oil from you. And he said, well, this is easier than I thought. So his he got 800 billion in reserves. And as we know, he then marched into into Ukraine to reestablish what he said was the was the mo most devastating thing that ever happened in the 21st century, well, the 20th century. It was not World War One, not World War Two. The, the crisis of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. So he's attempting to rebuild it, and we're we're seeing that now. Wow. Last question, always the same on our Six Questions podcast. Who is your favorite founding father, and why? Well, of course, I think we all have to put <clears throat> George Washington with, is the indispensable man. Uh, he just he just was he was spectacular in every way, and the way he behaved, and, and understanding of history, and his understanding of precedent, and that that everybody was going to follow him. But uh, other than that, we'll we'll put him on a shelf by himself. I would say Alexander Hamilton, who understood that that a sound currency is essential for freedom. And uh, as you know, we had about 11 years of, of uh, chaos between the Civil War and uh, 1787. And when they finally met back there because the American currencies were all messed up, count, the states had their own and all the rest. And that was a major ingredient in what brought them back to Philadelphia because George Washington had negotiated an agreement between, between Virginia and Maryland. They said, let's try to do that everywhere. And so when they tried to do it in the course of it, they kept going and eventually came up with the entire constitution. One of the provisions is that the president shall from time to time provide reports on the state of the union. 
In George Washington's third State of the Union address, he said the American people enjoy a peace and prosperity that could hardly have been hoped for. He said the American dollar stands at that high precipice that three years ago, it would have been a species of madness to have foretold. In other words, in his third State of the Union address, he said, if I would have told you the American dollar would be the strongest currency in the world, you would have said I was crazy. Yeah. Well, the reason he was able to do that was because one of the finest secretaries of treasury we ever had was Alexander Hamilton, a, an outstanding orphan who uh, John, John Adams didn't like very much. He called him a, that, that bastard son of a Scottish peddler, which is what he was. And uh, he was born in the Caribbean. He came here and dedicated his life as aide-de-camp to George Washington and did unbelievable things for our country. Two, two answers I certainly would, would not disagree with. Uh, yeah, Alexander Hamilton, just a, such a, a fascinating uh, leader in so many ways, military, financial, political. Um, former Representative Bob McEwen, thank you so much for being a guest on our Six Questions podcast. It's really been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Trent. Thanks to all of you for being a part of our uh, Facebook audience out there on our Facebook Defenders page and our, uh, our other Save Our States channels. We are so grateful for you and for everything that you do to make it possible for us to continue our defense of the Electoral College all around the country. Stay tuned for another Six Questions podcast next week. Thanks.